Welcome to the podcast of Saltbox Church, where from beginning to end, it is just Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less. He is risen. And that is why we gather. Okay. Um, So let's start in John uh, 19, verse 31. I'm going to read this very quickly. I'm not going to do it justice, but I want to move to um, John 20, and then I'm going to look uh, quickly at at John, the burial of Jesus. But I want to get to John 20, and I want to focus primarily on this lady that I love named Mary of Magdala. Um, in, in the Holy Land, probably one of my two or three favorite places was this little village that they've just discovered, I think in 20, maybe it was 2005 or 2009, I need to brush up on that, but they just discovered this little village of Magdala where they salted fish, and Mary Magdalene, or Mary of Magdala, would have come from this little village, right? So that's what I really want to get to and focus on today in the resurrection process um, of Jesus. So let's pick up in chapter 19, verse 31. Um, Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the cross during the Sabbath, that violated uh, Mosaic law, they asked Pontius Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. You can go and listen to last week if you want to about the um, actual crucifixion of Jesus. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. Uh, They would come out with a big heavy hammer that looks something like a 10-pound sledgehammer that we have, and they would literally swing it into um, probably the man's knees or right below the knees, and it would break the legs. And what that would do is they could no longer push up in order to breathe, so they would suffocate more quickly and killing them within a couple of hours. Um, Absolutely um, brutal. Verse 33, uh, when they came to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. Remember how I said that Jesus gave up his life willingly? He laid it down. No one took it from him, which is to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water out of his side. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you may also believe. These things happen so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. That's a reference to Exodus 12, 46, that you're not allowed to break the bones of the Passover lamb. So Jesus, we talked about that last week, becomes the new Passover lamb, the Passover lamb, once and for all. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. That's a reference to Zechariah 12.10, if you want to cross-reference those in your own study. The thing that I want to point out here, and again, I'm not going to fully do it justice, but I think what John, um, the beloved, John the disciple, is so powerfully pointing out is when the spear went in, no bones are broken, blood and water flows out. And I think that's probably symbolic of the two greatest sacraments of those of us who are Jesus people. The blood being? Somebody said it. Yep. Communion, Lord's Supper, bread and body. Okay, that's what the blood is. What's the water? Baptist, to be the infilling of the Holy Spirit, but it'll also be water baptism. So I think John is immediately pointing out, it's just, and, and I love, uh, somebody came up to me last Sunday and they said, it's amazing to me that the literal um, and the uh, symbolic uh, can coexist like they do in Scripture. And they do. Right? They, they coexist here. There is literal, and then John's pointing out some symbolic. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 38. 
Um, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pontius Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. How many of us are there some days? How many times am I sitting in a situation, sense the unction or the little tug of the Holy Spirit to share Jesus, and I get afraid? Just a little, just a little thing. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. I preached a sermon months ago at the beginning of John. It's in John 3. I think it's called like Jesus came for the religious or something. Um, but this is that same Nicodemus um, and the man who had earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. They took Jesus' body, the two of them. They wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. Um, this was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. Let me say a word on this because it's going to be powerful here in a minute as we unfold chapter 20. So the way it would work is uh, they would take the dead um, body. And I mean, you can imagine, um, like I'm a landscaper and we deal with like 40-pound bags of fertilizer, you know. So it's almost, that's 75 pounds of aloes and spices. It's a huge sack um, of a, a ton of spices. And what they would do is they would take two separate pieces of cloth, but the cloth would be about four. 40 yards, um, so a yard is three feet, so 48, 120 linear feet, right? So they would wrap the body starting um, actually at the feet, and they would wrap around and around, and with each wrap, they would sprinkle spices to um, inhibit the smell of decomposition. I know that's gross, but that's what they did. And that they would wrap, so wrap this 40 yards all the way up around um, Jesus's or whoever had died, their shoulders, and then they left a gap um, where the neck was, and they started again with another uh, cloth called a sweatband. Imagine what we now call a sweatband. That's where we got it from. But they would take another cloth and they would start at the top of the head and they would wrap down all the way over the face, again, sprinkling um, the aloes and the spices in. And so there would be a little gap of material that was left undone. And then they would lay the person in the tomb. Um, and then, uh, and this is going to be important here in just a minute, but a tomb in these days was often either a natural cavern or a cavern that had been hewn out of rock. It would be, that's what a wealthy person um, would afford. And I, I wish we could show up this morning at the garden tomb um, right outside the old city walls. I'd love to preach this sermon to you right there because I could point to a tomb and go, it might be that Jesus was laid in this actual tomb right at the foot of this hill called Golgotha. But in this tomb, if you can envision a cavern sort of into a solid rock, um, and then there's a groove, and almost all the old tombs were made like this, but there was a groove that rolled downhill, and they took a disc-like rock that would have weighed uh, one to two tons, so what, two to 4,000 pounds, and a disc-like rock would have been set in front of the tomb, and when they laid somebody into the tomb, they would then take this big uh, one to two ton rock, and they would roll it down this little slope in, in this little groove, and it would go and slide into place and lock. Now, could one person come and take that um, two-ton rock and roll it back up the hill? No, and that's the idea, that it, took, it would take many, many people, um, eight, ten or so, to actually roll this rock and probably some straps or ropes or cords to actually open it up and unseal it. And the idea was that no one could get in and, um, and rob the grave. Okay? Make sense? All that's setting the table for where we're headed, so kind of hang on it. Okay, um, verse 40, taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. Um, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb. Amazing. 
in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Okay. Here we go. Into, into chapter 20. This is kind of the crux of what we're heading to. And um, Spencer, do you have my uh, Philippians verse? Because Is it possible to put that up? It's Philippians 3, uh, verses 10 and 11. And the reason I want to do this, um, if, it, if it, oh good, there it is. Um, the, the reason I want to do this is I want to uh, look at the lens of Mary of Magdala through Philippians 3, 10 and 11. Okay? Does that make sense? How many of you know you can't interpret the Bible except with the Bible? So the only way you interpret the Bible is through the Bible. The Bible self-interprets. Um, so we're going to look at the life of Mary of Magdala. And here's what I want to actually wrestle with. Of all the people Jesus could have told that he rose from the dead, of all the people, why would he pick Mary of Magdala? I mean, why? What was it? And so what I want to actually open up in this John 20 is what was it about this woman? What was it about her heart posture? What was it about her human experience? What was it about who she was in her relationship and journey with Jesus that made her so unique that God's sovereign almighty decided to reveal to her this eternal truth for the first time to the first person that he had broken the bounds of death and hell and sin and separation and that he was in fact the risen Christ the King. What was it about this woman? Let's find out. Philippians 3, 10 and 11. This is in the Amplified translation. I don't, um, off, sometimes I like the Amplified, sometimes I don't. Um, this is one of my favorite life verses. Um, this is very near and dear to my heart. So here's, we're going we're gonna to go through it together. For my determined purpose is that I may know him. Who's him? Jesus, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him. You'll hear me pray that sometimes. Lord Jesus, may I become progressively and more deeply, intimately acquainted with you. If I don't do anything else on planet earth, if all we do, it's like, go back one. Sorry. Boop. Uh, if all we do is to become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, um, I think we will have succeeded at life on planet earth. Yeah? Okay. Next, next frame. Perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and more clearly, and that I may in that same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection, which it exerts over believers. And that so I may share in his sufferings as to be continually transformed in spirit, into his likeness, even into his death, in the hope that if possible, I may obtain, that should be obtain, not attain, that I may obtain uh, to the spiritual and moral resurrection that lifts me out, out from um, among the dead while in the body. Okay, that's a little clunky. Let me read it to you here. Um, the, here's what the NIV says. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings. Don't miss that. Like we miss this in church in America all the time. I have no idea why. We want it to be like the prosperity. Yeah, everything's going to be great. Well, it might. But what most of the Bible actually says is, 
I want to know Christ. He has to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Okay? And we're going to use this kind of, if we can, as a lens to look at Mary of Magdala and go, why in the world did, was she the one that was chosen? Yeah? I'm going to read it to you one more time in the Amplified. For my determined purpose is that I may know him, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of his person more strongly and clearly, and that I may in the same way come to know the power outflowing from his resurrection, which it exerts over believers, and that I may so share in his sufferings to be continually transformed in spirit into his likeness, even to his death, in the hope that if possible, I may obtain to the spiritual and moral resurrection that lifts me out from among the dead, even while in the body. In other words, he's saying, I, Paul's writing Philippians, and he's saying, I want to fully know Christ, the participation in his sufferings, in his death, that actually all of heaven and eternity, this, this holy God that lives in eternity, would get into me now, and I could experience it now while I'm still in the body, and then after when I cross over into death. Make sense? Okay, I know that's a mouthful. So let's, we're going to dig in now, and we're going to try to look at Mary of Magdala sort of through this um, lens. So let's start reading in John chapter 20, and we'll go uh, through verse 18. Okay, early on the first day of the week. What day was the first day of the week? Mm, we don't have a consensus. It was Sunday. Um, while it was still dark, so this would be between probably 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., like really, really early, Mary um, Magdalene, or I like to call her Mary of Magdala, went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, go back to my little analogy. You have this huge disc-like stone, weighs a, a ton or two. It's been rolled down over the, the, um, the, the place uh, where the, sort of the entrance, and Mary goes to the tomb. She comes up, she rolls up to the tomb, and she discovers that someone has rolled it back. And when you, you have to actually roll it back in this little slot that the tombs, they, the way they were made, you would roll it back, and then you would take a chalk stone and you'd chalk underneath it so that it didn't. Right, okay. So that's what Mary comes to, and this is what she discovers. So she came running to Simon Peter. Now, the tomb is out from Jerusalem some bit, so it's 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And who's up between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m.? Some of us. Why is Mary up? I think she's heartbroken. I think she's not sleeping. I think she's weeping. I think she's weeping through the night. I think she's overcome with grief. I think she doesn't know what to do. She feels like she's uh, void now of purpose. It's like her Lord, her Savior, her friend, her everything has been crucified. So she gets up in the middle of the night, which probably wasn't all that safe for women at this time, and she goes rolling down to the tomb, and she discovers that the stone has been rolled back, and her first move is to run to Simon Peter. Now, what has Simon Peter just done? What's he just done? Like, I mean, hours before. Three times. Betrayed Jesus. Okay, now I have a theory about Simon Peter. I can't prove it, but this is my theory, that once he betrayed Jesus, his name was mud for a little while. Not only among Christians, but actually among 
non-Christians. I actually imagine Simon Peter rolling through Jerusalem at points and people who were non-believers, like non-Jesus people, cackling at this guy because he'd given everything for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus, and then when push came to shove, what happened? He beats it, right? He runs away, just runs out the door and and he's gone. Okay, so... Here is, I think, the, the, the thing that is amazing and you need to understand is even in Peter's abject sin, abandoning Jesus, running away, who does Mary go to? Simon Peter. The respect that Peter had from all of the disciples, he's the clear leader. So Mary of Magdala runs to Simon Peter. So she's outside the city walls. She sees the stone has been rolled up. She turns around. She's like in all sorts of feelings and terror, and maybe they've stolen the body of the Lord. She turns around. She runs back into Jerusalem. And I would guess Peter is hiding at some relative's house or some friend's house in Jerusalem. And she goes and beats on the door at 3, 4 a.m., and what's she do? Wakes everybody up. Okay, and so Peter uh, comes out, and it also says the other disciple. Now, my opinion here, the other disciple is actually John. It then says the one Jesus loved. Now, remember, uh, there's two ways you could look at this. You could go, well, if John is writing the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, isn't he being braggadocious? Maybe, but remember, John is pushing 80, 90 years old when he wrote this, and he actually wrote it in an oral tradition. He spoke it, and then the elders of the church in Ephesus were the ones who scribed it down, wrote it down. So my opinion is they had such love and respect. I mean, John was a legend in the church in Ephesus. They loved him. They revered him. And so I believe that John would have shared it more humbly. And then these guys writing it down would have uh, cast it in, in that way, the way they saw it. Make sense? All right, let's keep going. They have taken the Lord. Who's the Lord? Jesus, out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. I mean, I imagine Mary in just duress here. She is probably shrieking. She is wailing. They've taken his body. I I was going to go and mourn. He is my Lord. She is in absolute and utter distress. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. So now they're in Jerusalem, maybe at two different houses. We don't know. Verse 4, both were running. I actually love this, but the other disciple outran Peter (laughs) and reached the tomb first. I'm not going to take the time to do this, but if we actually combed through the details that are in this in John, and then we did Matthew and Mark and Luke, and looked at the details of the resurrection story, in my opinion, these details begin to pile up in such a way that no one would have ever written this unless it was true. I mean, in other words, if we called a team together and we said, hey, we're going to start a big uh, cult religion, write a book about it, okay? And, and, and on the resurrection scene, you know, make sure it's really believable. Guess what you're not going to put in there? But the other disciple outran Peter. I mean, it's, it's just like, What? But the reality, like what I love about the gospel writers is the, 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 the truth, the nuts and bolts truth, the, the, the essential facts, just like the, the way life was is unfolded if you begin to read it. And, and to me, one of the things, there's many, many things, but one of the things that actually says that this story is without a doubt 100% true and worth you giving your life and me giving my life for of entirety is because of things like this, because it is so real. Verse 5. He bent over and looked, 
in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Okay, so rewind. Peter and who? 3 a.m., 4 a.m., they're running all the way there, right? They get there. Now, uh, the younger one, John, John's probably 16. Peter's probably in his 20s. Um, John outruns him. Maybe he's in better shape. You know, I don't know. But anyway, John gets there first. And what does John do? Very important. What's John do? He stops. In the tomb or outside of the tomb? Outside the tomb. He stops at the tomb. And what's he do? Now, let's look at what Peter does. He, John, bent over and looked in, the, looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and, just like Simon Peter, went straight into the tomb. I mean, this is Peter. Lord, if it's you, call me to get out of the boat and let me walk on the water. You know, I mean, this, this is Peter. Lord, you know, let's set up a house here on this mountain and live here. For, I mean, Peter is always this, like, this is so true to Peter's personality and John's personality. John comes to the entrance of the tomb. John is slightly timid. Uh, he is pensive. He is thoughtful. He is wondering. He is considering the deeper matters of theology and what's happened to the body of Jesus. And he's trying to make sense of the last three years of his life with Jesus, and he's like pondering all these things inside of his heart and mind. And then Peter, who's fallen behind him, comes running up, and he just goes right in. So Peter. Again, I think this is one of the things that points out just the reality and the authenticity of this resurrection story, because these guys are both so true to everything written about them in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay. He uh, saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. Sweatband, remember? Now, the cloth was still lying in its place. So what's the cloth? Sweatband. So the cloth is still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Remember I told you, 40 yards of linen, a little bit of a gap, sweatband cloth. You have, um, it, Jesus would have been laid on some sort of like stone, almost like a countertop or a little stoop, but he would have been laid in the tomb. And so you have the linen, uh, 40 yards of linen that had been fully wrapped around the body. And then you have the sweatband that would have been wrapped around the head, this little space of a few inches in between. Now, if you wanted to get a body out of 40 yards of linen, how do you get a body out of it? Unwrap it. What else? Get your scissors or your Swiss army knife. Okay. So what does it say? The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. So what's it saying there? You can cross-check this with the other, the other gospel stories as well. It was totally undisturbed as if uh, the body of Jesus was still inside, and yet it wasn't. So if somebody would have uh, faked the resurrection, what would they have had to do? Unravel it, cut it, open up. There would have been something disturbed. But what begins to unfold here is it appears that the body of Jesus has vanished. The body of Jesus has evaporated. The body of Jesus is just gone. And this perfectly wrapped linen that the way Joseph of Arimathea and um, Nicodemus left it is lying in its place with those spices just boom right there. Okay? Let's keep going. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first. Who's this? 
John. So go back to our story. You have John pensive waiting outside. You get the idea that Mary was probably coming with them, but she's fallen way behind because these guys both took off and ran. Peter comes running in. He goes charging straight into the tomb. So you have John outside the tomb, Peter inside the tomb, Mary lagging somewhere behind. Okay. Finally, the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went inside. Very... um, Uh, in keeping with the character of John. And I love this. Let's say this together. What does it say next? He saw and believed. Uh, It is my opinion that John was actually the first one to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I believe at that moment, Peter's standing inside, breathing heavy, You know, who knows what Peter's doing, distraught, yelling. I see Peter as kind of this loud guy. Um, But everyone looks to Peter as the undisputed leader. John steps into the tomb, and John sees. Now, what does John see? Forty yards of material, totally undisturbed, the sweatband at the top of the head, the little gap in between them, and things are completely undisturbed. And I think John at this moment has this like supernatural impartation from God and he sees and goes, he's risen. Verse nine, I love that he puts this in there though. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Now verse 10 is very unusual to me. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So they're standing in the tomb. I wonder what they said to each other. And then they just decide, back to Jerusalem. And they may have been staying at different houses. I mean... I've probably have done the same thing. I'm going to go back to bed. I'm tired. I haven't had my coffee. But they went back to where they're staying. Okay, verse 11. Now, <clears throat> Mary stood outside the tomb crying. So envision Peter and John go back to Jerusalem. There's a number of different ways and gates they could have entered Jerusalem. So it's possible they missed Mary. It's also possible they saw Mary and said something. And Mary went, I'm going to go and continue to mourn. It was, it was in custom with this time that you would actually mourn at the tomb for three days. But regardless, you get this idea that Mary's going back to the tomb. Peter and John went back to bed, and Mary goes to the tomb, and what's she begin to do? She stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Verse 13, and I don't even know if I can fully unpack this, but you've got to understand something. Angels are standing outside, and, and let me just let me make a couple statements here because I think it'll be helpful. 
Um, biblically speaking, from Genesis to Revelation, you have Yahweh God, um, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one. Um, and they have a created host called the host of heaven or the angelic armies, okay? And in the Old Testament, um, there is a point where one of the angels um, named, named Lucifer decided to get arrogant um, and jealous of God, thought he was better than God, thought he was a big shot, thought he should be in God's seat. And so he um, sort of deceived and led a group of about a third of the angels um, in rebellion against God, and God um, separated and cast. Satan and these, these fallen angels out of heaven, and, and biblically they're called demons, okay? So you have Satan and some demons. Now you have God, Yahweh God, the host of heaven, and the angelic armies. That was the nutshell version. Does that make sense? Okay. It's very important, though, to note that Satan is not God's equal. Notice how I'm even saying this, like Satan's down here, God's up here. So Satan was a created being. Who created Satan. God. So Satan is not God's equal. That's very important. A lot of Christians and people get this kind of goobered up and they think that like evil is the opposite of good and Satan is the opposite of God. No, Satan is against God. Satan is evil and he is against God. And at this moment he is um, ruling much of the earth or the earth. And in time, Jesus is going to come back and over and return and establish his kingdom. That's the book of Revelation. Um, so but at the cross, when Jesus rose from the dead, he's now defeated Satan. We're sort of just living in the tension between when Satan's been defeated and when Jesus ultimately returns. Does that make sense? That was a really fast mouthful. Okay, <clears throat> let's keep going because I think this is important. So we have these two angels who are sitting outside of time. They're sitting on the other side of eternity. So to them, they've been waiting for all time for Jesus to actually come to earth as a baby, to live, to have this ministry, and to die. And they knew good and well that after he died, what was going to happen? He's going to rise from the dead. He's going to break the backbone of death and hell and sin and separation. So this is a very natural question to two angels who are sitting there. Verse 13, they ask her, woman, why are you crying? Like from their vantage point, they're going, this is good news. We've been waiting for this for all time, like for all eternity. This is the fulcrum point. He's alive. He is living. He is risen. He's broken death. He is resurrected. He is here now. And woman, why are you crying? Now, I, I want you to think for just a minute, because I think this is also important. When we lose someone we love, it's good to grieve. Yes? It's good to cry. Who do we cry for? That's good. Mostly ourselves. When a person who is in Jesus dies, we don't die uh, in our spirit. We're transformed in that death into eternity. Okay? Are they crying? No! I just sat at the hospital with, and a dear, dear lady and friend that I've known for many, many years just passed away. And every, we were all crying. And I looked at one of them and I said, hey, even if she was given the chance to come back at this very moment. She wouldn't. She's dancing with Jesus. She, she'd been sick and she'd suffered a massive crippling and debilitating illness for many, many years. And she is dancing with Jesus. She's on the other side. So you get this idea that these angels are sitting here, and I don't think they're being mean, but they are kind of incredulous. And, and woman is not disrespectful. It's actually dear woman or precious woman. It's like a, it's a, a warm, tender greeting. But it's like, woman, why are you crying? 
He's alive. I mean, that's what's emanating from these two guys, these two angels. They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. Come on. I can't wait. I can't wait to get to heaven. Mary is one of those people. I want to get to heaven. I can't wait to sit down and talk to Mary. Tell me what it was like. At this point, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. Now, let's just get practical. Why didn't she realize it was Jesus? Two reasons. Number one, what's she doing? Wailing, you know, she's blurry-eyed, eyes are probably swollen, can't barely see through them. What's the other reason? That's really good. That's a third reason. What is Jesus now? He's a new body, okay? So I think he looks like he did before, but he's now this transcendent, eternal being. So he looks different new. Uh, and that is a mystery I can't fully unpack. Um, so I don't think she's anticipating this new uh, eternal look that he sort of has. And then I would say thirdly, um, she, she doesn't know it's him because she just can't even get her mind around that the, the man she loved who was just dead is now she just can't get it. Verse 15. He, Jesus, asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Again, very respectful, very tender. Who is it? I love that Jesus asked questions. I love that he doesn't come in and presume. I love that he doesn't come in and like tell you what to do or what to think. Like, Notice that. Those of us who are walking with Jesus and in human relationships, you're never more like Jesus than when you are asking questions, seeking to know, seeking to understand, rather than lording your opinion or your will or your way. You follow that? You see the dichotomy that breaks forth here? Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener. Remember, Jesus is at the garden tomb. They're standing at the garden tomb. She said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. So Mary is just fully in this. I'm grieving. I'm mourning. I want to do my three days of mourning because he's dead. And then Jesus, verse 16, said to her, Mary. Mary. And I can just imagine that when Jesus rolled her name out of his mouth, that it was this profound moment of awakening where Mary went, ah. She turned towards him and cried out in Arama Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher or my great master. Jesus said, do not hold on to me. So you get the idea that Mary's probably throwing himself at her feet. She's going to embrace him or hug him. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. You're getting a little glimpse there into Jesus' heavenly body. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and to your God. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them, that he had said these things to her. Okay. 
Here's what I want to do in our remaining moments. I want to give you a little bit of background on Mary of Magdala. Um, I want to open more fully, why did Jesus reveal himself to Mary? Could he have chosen one of the disciples? Could he have chosen one of the Roman guards? Could he have chosen somebody who didn't believe? Could he have chosen Joseph of Arimathea? Or could he have chosen Nicodemus? Could he have chosen one of the 120 that gathered in the upper room? Could he have chosen one of the 500 that he revealed his risen body to after he was resurrected but before he ascended into heaven? So why is it of this huge array of people that he chose this Mary of Magdala? So I want to go give you a little background on her. I want to analyze why did, why did Jesus reveal himself to her and what does it reveal to us about Mary? Um, and then why did Jesus send Mary to tell his brothers? And then finally we'll look at this, I've seen the Lord. Um, and we'll tie it up right there. Okay, so background on Mary of Magdala. Um, I, I want to be quick here, but um, Luke 7, verses 36 to 50, there's a sinful woman that anoints Jesus. If you want to go back, I preached on it, I think it was about a year ago, but it's called par uh, Parables um, and Alabaster Jar. You can go look at it on our YouTube channel. Um, but I'm going to assume today that Mary is the sinful woman in Luke 7, okay? Now, all cards on the table. Um, there are many theologians that would adamantly disagree with me. Just need to know that. Um, I don't think what we believe about Mary's history, um, which if she was the woman from Luke 7, she was a former prostitute, but I don't think what we believe about Mary's history is essential to our salvation. You follow me? Okay, but I'm going to work through some truth here about Mary. I'm going to make the assumption that she was the sinful woman in Luke 7. I'm going to make the assumption that she was a prostitute. Um, and you just need to know there's people that disagree. Um, I, there's a quote from early church fathers that says, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. So in essentials, unity. What, are, what is an essential of our Christian faith? Jesus is Lord. Jesus was crucified. Jesus resurrected. In other words, when you and I stand before Jesus at the great, great white throne and he says, what, why should I let you into my heaven? My opinion on Mary of Magdala is not the answer. You hear what I'm saying? It, it just isn't. Um, although I can't wait to get there and ask her because I think I'm right. <laughs> but I might be wrong. Wouldn't be the first time and it sure won't be the last. Okay, so... Um, <clears throat> right after Luke 7, the sinful woman anoints Jesus' feet. She would have been a prostitute. Um, and then in Luke 8, it goes right into Mary of Magdala and two other women, and then many other women traveled with Jesus in person and provided for him out of their own means. So I am of the opinion that Luke 7 goes right into Luke 8, and it, and it basically is indicating the way in which Mary came to faith in Jesus. And it also indicates that Mary's somewhat of a wealthy woman because she travels with several other women and then a larger group of women with Jesus and with his disciples and, like, is helping to set up tents, is helping to clean clothes, is helping to cook dinner, is like serving. Like she is like, and this isn't a sexist thing, don't, don't you dare take that this way. This is just a woman who is going, I will do anything to be near my Jesus. You hear me? Okay. Um, it also says in Luke 8 that seven demons are cast out of Mary. Remember my little, okay. Um, we don't know what that is, but my view is that 
Um, if Mary was in fact a prostitute, she was probably either forced into prostitution out of starvation, out of her lack. She could have been sold by her parents. She could have been forced there by a, a family member, a distant family member. Maybe her parents died. There's a number of different scenarios. But my essential um, viewpoint is that Mary was deeply, deeply hurt and wounded. And we've talked about this before. But when we're deeply wounded, um, we can become uh, angry and disappointed and bitter. And that bitterness can become hatred. And when you stoop into deeper and deeper levels of hurt and woundedness and hatred and bitterness, and you don't allow the Lord Jesus to come in and work healing into your soul, into your spirit, into your body, um, even healing memories and, and working through, whether it's counseling or walking with friends or writing or journaling, when you don't allow God to come in and heal you internally, um, it actually can become a place where the enemy can come and attach or live. Does that make sense? So my essential view on this is Mary was deeply, deeply wounded and hurt. And if she was a prostitute in the village of Magdala, in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, uh, what type of people might have come to Mary? Could the religious leaders have shown up? Could she have been bitter with the church? Could she have hated Judaism? Could she have hated God? Could she have hated her parents? You follow me? So it's at least possible that when it says, the scripture says that seven demons are cast out of her, that she had become, um, she had experienced not only bondage to the um, act of being a prostitute, but she was in bondage in her own heart because of the severity of her hatred. And the enemy had taken up residence then on her, in her, um, because of her choices. Follow me? Now, what that also unfolds is um, because Mary must have suffered such severe mental, emotional, and psychological trauma, um, being uh, whatever she was, let's say she was the prostitute, and Jesus delivered her. She comes to faith in Jesus. Jesus drives this, these demonic things out of her. He begins the process of, of walking her to wholeness and health and life and joy in Jesus and joy in life and peace and hope. And she's like experiencing these emotions and these things she's never experienced before. She's, she's breathing free of being violated. She's breathing free of being hurt and of being hated. She's breathing free for the first time. She's no longer harboring bitterness and ugliness and resentment, perhaps towards um, the, the Judea, uh, Judaism leaders, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Perhaps she's no longer harboring bitterness and hatred towards some of the Roman um, governmental leaders that came down and visited her. And all of a sudden, this Mary who was shackled in bondage and and chained, if you will, to her own maybe prostitution and then maybe to the bitterness and ugliness in her own heart has found freedom. And when you find freedom from that, man, you are like all in. You hear me? I mean, you are all in because you're going, I am free. I was lost, but now I'm found. I used to be blind, but now I'm, I'm free. And so Mary, perhaps more than any other person, maybe alive at this moment, understands two things. She understands the depth of human evil and depravity. I mean, she understands what it might feel like to be taken perhaps as a little girl and sold into something by someone that's in your family. Perhaps she understands what it's like to not be able to feed herself and have to give your physical body so that you can eat. Perhaps she understands well, the pain of what it's like to see religious leaders or um, governmental leaders out on the streets looking proud and together and then what they do in secret places. You follow me? So you have this... 
um, th- this, this Mary um, who uh, has suffered so deeply, has now experienced life and freedom, um, and, and she is now groping around in the darkness of this very night going, where is my Jesus? Consequently, from all of those things, I would say that her devotion from for her devotion to Jesus may have been stronger than anyone alive. She's all in. This man has led her to life and freedom, and she is fully devoted. Okay, let's pivot from that background and let's look at why did Jesus reveal himself first to Mary of Magdala? I have a number of thoughts. Firstly, those who have experienced abuse, um, wounding, um, hurt, being bullied, um, being neglected, being hated, uh, uh, those who have experienced um, even things like racism or disease or um, anyone who's experienced this level of pain, I believe has a unique opportunity because they have a greater capacity to understand the grace and life and love and freedom of the Lord Jesus. Now that's good news for some of you in here who may be like me who've experienced some things. Because if you have suffered greatly, If you go back to my opening verse, that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with him, that I may, um, and that I may in some way come to know the power outflowing uh, of his resurrection, which it exerts over believers. Let me find my place. that I may so share in his sufferings as to be continually transformed in spirit and into his likeness, into his death, attaining from the resurrection of the dead. Mary is a woman who has suffered so deeply, and because she has suffered so deeply, she has a unique capacity to experience the life and the love and the hope of the Lord Jesus. For those of us online, in person, who are sitting here today, who have suffered deeply in, a, in all the myriad of life and circumstances, even people who are suffering from disease and difficulty and financial trauma, you fill it in, but people who have suffered severely have a unique capability and opportunity. If you are willing to go to the Lord Jesus with your suffering, with your difficulty, with your pain, and if you will exchange your brokenness, whatever it is, for the life of Jesus that he won at the cross, conquering death and hell, you will begin to actually experience day by day, moment by moment, the infilling power of Jesus that overcomes death and overcomes hell and overcomes sin and overcomes abuse and overcomes addiction and overcomes poverty and overcomes racism. This is Jesus. This is Jesus. And if you're here today and can hear the sound of my voice and you would go, I've been hurt, I've been abused, I've been bullied, I've been hated, people have been racist towards me, whatever it is, listen to me. If you will begin to exchange your hurt, if you will begin to exchange your pain for the life of Jesus, and it's not just once, it's kind of like an onion, you know, you got a layer and a layer, you do it once and for all, but then you do it again and you just get on your knees and you go, Lord Jesus, I'm coming again with my pain, with my anger, with my shame, with my hurt. And as you do it, it's an exchange that happens where you trade your brokenness for the life of Christ in you and through you. And it is so powerful. 
This is my story, actually. You don't know, and some of you don't know my whole story, but this is my story of brokenness and trading my brokenness for the redemptive life of Jesus in me. This is your story if you're willing to make it so. But this, why Mary Magdalene? Because she was so wounded and so abused, I believe she had a greater opportunity and capacity to understand the grace and redemption and restoration of King Jesus. Come on. Let me switch the metaphor, similar but different. Those who have tasted of their own depravity or their own sin or their own addiction and those who have seen the depravity of humankind. You've seen human evil, you've tasted of human evil. You also have a unique ability to access the kingdom of God, the will of God, the way of God, and a unique capability to receive the fullness of his kingdom. You follow me? So this is a both and. It's those who've been hurt, violated, abused, but it's also those who've recognized the depth of their own sin. Because when you come to the point where you recognize, I am bankrupt, I cannot do this, I can't make it happen, I can't be good enough, I can't perform well enough, I can't earn the pleasure of God, only in laying it all down and recognizing that I am absolutely bankrupt and exchanging the brokenness of my life for the wholeness of Christ Jesus, can you experience the resurrection power of Jesus? And I am convinced that Mary of Magdala recognized her own propensity to evil and sin and her own depravity. She recognized the abuse and the ugliness and the propensity of religious leaders and political leaders and other people and their propensity towards sin and evil and ugliness. And in so doing, she recognized that the only hope was King Jesus. And so she's going, I will give it all. I will follow you. I will stay up all night. I will stand at the tomb. I will look inside. I will wait for you because this is my Jesus and I'm going to find that body and I'm going to stand with him and I'm going to follow him wherever he goes. And you disciples can go back to sleep and you can go hide or whatever you're doing. I don't care. I'm going to follow you and I'm going to find you and I'm going to go where you go and I'm going to go everywhere you go and I'm never going to get up and I'm never going to back down because this Jesus is real. That's Mary of Magdala. I'd say to you also that love lingers. Mary lingers by the tomb. It's the last place she saw him. It's the last place she saw his body. Love lingers. Love waits. Love perseveres. She'd been pursued by Jesus. She'd been set free by Jesus because Jesus loved her so much. She turned around and she lingered by the tomb waiting. I can't believe. I'm, no shame on Peter and John. We'll see what they say to me in eternity. But they went back. They bailed out again. And Mary just lingers by the tomb, waiting, waiting for her Jesus to show up. I think also what begins to take place here is Mary becomes a symbolic picture of the bride of Christ. Who's the bride of Christ? Okay, and the bride, we all have prostituted ourselves, given ourselves to things that aren't of God, been sold into slavery, abused, hurt, you fill in the blank. The, and in that sense, we become like Mary. I think she's a picture of the bride of Christ. I think that's why God chose to reveal himself to her. The other thing I would say is, and this is funny, some of you may not like it, and that's okay, but I believe that Jesus wanted to give a woman the opportunity to see the risen Christ first because it doesn't fit in the male 
complementarian viewpoint of church. He didn't reveal it to a man. Who do you reveal it to? Go back to the garden. This is such beautiful redemption. I can't even get my hands around it. I could do a whole sermon on this alone. Who did Satan deceive first in Genesis 1, 2, and 3? What for redemption? That when you come back to the garden, in the garden, who deceived? Satan deceived who first? Eve. In the garden, who did Jesus reveal himself to first? Come on. I mean, the redemption of God here is so beautiful. This loving God, this tender God, this gracious God, and he chooses Mary. And I think it messes up male theologian people for all time in churches forever because the one who preaches the first Easter sermon is who? (laughs) Jesus shows up and he says, go tell the boys. What is preaching? Testifying. What is preaching? Telling. What is preaching? Declaring. What is preaching? Teaching. What is preaching but saying what you've experienced and what you know to be true? And then Jesus looks at Mary standing at the tomb that day, two angels inside, Mary sitting outside, Jesus standing there, and he says, go and tell the boys that have gone back to sleep and preach the first Easter sermon. Last couple of thoughts on that. I think there also may have been a touch of rebuke in Jesus against the disciples. Touch of rebuke. And we all need a touch of rebuke. I also love that he revealed to Mary his intent. He told Mary what he didn't even tell them. I'm going to ascend to my father. He told him his, her, her his purpose. And then I think the last thing that I would say, and it's probably the thing about Mary, is Jesus always reveals himself to the ones who are spiritually hungry. Jesus always reveals himself to the ones who will press in. Jesus always reveals himself to the ones who will wait. Jesus reveals himself to the one who will set your alarm early and get up and get in your one-year Bible and say, Jesus, I need you because I don't like my life without you. You hear me? Jesus reveals himself and you as a Christian will begin to experience the fullness of the power and presence of God when you can actually begin to engage God in this hungry way. Not that you loved him first. He loved you first. But you begin to love him in response. Why, Mary? Because I think Mary Mary pursued Jesus in faith, in belief, more than any other person alive at that moment. And God revealed himself to her. Boom. Okay, I've got to wrap this up and I'm not quite done. So I want to say two things and then we're going to end it. When Jesus says to Mary, don't hold on to me for I've not yet descended to my father. Go instead to my brothers. Are these guys his brothers? This is like a mic drop moment for Christian. This is like a um, Jesus is saying, God incarnate who has beat death and hell is now calling the guys who've abandoned him, um, except for John, uh, his brothers. So he is actually inviting us into sonship with Yahweh God. He's inviting us to be sort of co-rulers, co-heirs. Now it's Christ in us, so don't mix that about. But this is such a powerful theological moment. Go and tell my brothers. He's looking at them through the sin, past the sin, through the failure, past the failure, past the shame, past the guilt. And he's calling them out as his brothers up to become the apostles that would go and change the world. 
Like it is so mind-boggling and powerful. And then he goes, I'm going to ascend to my father and to your father. So he puts them on an equal playing field with him before Yahweh God. Not my God and your God, my father, your father. So he invites us into this powerful place that I think Mary's already begun to access here, where we begin to see Jesus as brother, God as father. And we begin to embrace this idea that we are sons and daughters. We are saints. We are not sinners saved by grace. We are. We are sinners saved by grace. But you can either park your car at some point and live your life as a sinner saved by grace, or you can begin to live your life under the reality that I am bought with the blood of Jesus. I am a saint with the capacity to sin. Sometimes I make bad choices, but the by and large truth of my life is I am a saint and you are a saint if Jesus is in you. And you can live your life out of this overflow of who God is in you now, not sitting around beating yourself up for your failure. You hear me? It's so powerful when you begin to get your head around what Jesus has preached here and says, go and tell my brothers, uh, don't hold on to me. I've not yet ascended to my father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and to your God. And Mary runs and tells the perhaps sleeping fellas, I have seen the Lord. Love lingers. Daniel and Missy, would y'all come out? I want to, we've gone over a little bit. I want to do something slightly different here. If there's something in you that resonates with Mary, hurt, violated, abused, hated, bullied, rejected, left alone, and you want to begin to exchange some of that brokenness for the life of Jesus in you and through you, <clears throat> there's nothing, let me just say, there's nothing magic about standing up or coming to the front or doing anything. This is a transaction between you and God. But when the Holy Spirit tugs on your heart, it's important that you respond. You hear me? It's just important that you take a step. It doesn't matter if it's a baby step or a big leap, it doesn't matter. But if you resonate with having been hurt like Mary, would you be willing um, to stand and just say, Lord, I'm gonna, I'm gonna exchange um, my brokenness and my hurt for your grace. I know that's a big risk. What, will people think I'm abused? Will people think I was a prostitute? Will be, this isn't that, okay? This is like, um, I've been hurt. I've been disappointed. I've been rejected. And today I'm taking a stand like Mary and I'm gonna wait outside the tomb for my Jesus to come and set me free, to begin to heal me. So here's what I wanna do. I'm gonna have everybody stand as we close. We're gonna sing a closing song and then we're gonna go. If our prayer team will come down to the front. And I'm gonna ask you to, I'm gonna ask you to do something I've never asked you to do, but if you would be willing to go I identify with that. I identify with recognizing my own depravity. Would you just come down to the front? Anybody who goes, I want to begin to exchange my brokenness for the wholeness of Christ in me and through me. 
Front's open. Anyone want us to come down and worship with us? We're just going to worship together. They're going to lead us in a song. This is a supernatural transaction. And after this song, I'll close us in prayer.
I'm going to close this right here, but if you need special prayer, some of our prayer teams will be down here. As you go from this place today, go that, go knowing that as you exchange your brokenness, <laughs> the life of King Jesus will come live in you and through you. And there is joy and hope and peace that is possible for you, not only today, but every day. Lord, would you send this congregation forth as ambassadors for Christ Jesus, just like Mary ran and told the guys. Lord, I pray that as we taste of your goodness and grace, that we could now run and tell those you've put in our life. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast of Saltbox Church. If this content was helpful to you, please like it, rate it, review it, and share it on social media, as that is helpful to us. We believe when a person grows in their own Jesus journey, everyone around them benefits and gets better.